Sex and power, can they ever be disentangled? You're listening to Navarra FM on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest radio station. I am James Butler. You might be forgiven for thinking if you've followed the wave of headlines and reckonings over the last few years that we've cracked the problem of sex and power. That all we need to know is that the problem is consent, sort that, and the problem is solved. But what if that wasn't enough? What if the question of consent was essential, but only the beginning of the conversation about sex and power? What if there were deeper, more intractable difficulties here, worthy of thinking through in all their complexity? Hi, I'm Catherine Angel. I'm the author of Tomorrow's Sex Will Be Good Again, that's coming out with Verso next week. And uh, I teach at Birkbeck in the English Theatre and Creative Writing Department. We can probably start by by just situating the book in terms of the stuff that it's responding to and the, the kind of moment that produced it, which I think, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just important to get a sense of that because it's it's a book that stands on its own, but it's obviously a response to the kind of change in the politics of sex that we've seen over the course of the past few years, especially. Uh, and I think, you know, in, in obvious ways, it's a response to me too, though it's it's obviously not that alone. And so maybe you just give a sense of, of the lay of the land and, and what kind of prompted the writing of the book. Sure. The writing of this book had a long, painful gestation. Um, so I had quite a lot of the material way before Me Too happened. And obviously, you know, Me Too is a distinct moment, but it's also, we've seen it all before. And, you know, in a sense, it was nothing new, depressingly. But um, in the wake of Me Too, I felt really struck by how these kind of reiterations of consent and the importance of consent were in danger, I think, of really missing what was an opportunity to rethink relationships between, uh, you know, particularly between men and women, but, you know, not exclusively so. And I, you know, I should say, consent is a good thing and it's the bare minimum for sex. And and that, you know, is the kind of ground for everything that I talk about in the book. But I felt really preoccupied by how the sort of, um, you know, public kind of popular formulations of consent were really tending to um, address women primarily, as you know, we've often seen in relation to sexual violence, and to intone this kind of almost mantra that the way to resolve sexual violence is um, to know what you want and to say what you want. And I think I felt so disturbed by this because I feel that too often the idea of the complexity of sexual desire has been, uh, you know, ceded to misogyny, (laughs) to misogynists, and to often very right-wing narratives, you know, some of which I talk about in the book, narratives which invoke the difficulty of accessing our own sexual desire or the difficulty, um, or, or, you know, there's the subtle complex dynamics of, of sexuality as a ground for dismissing conversations about abuses of power. And I sort of wanted to grab that back and say, that complexity is for us. And it's where we should start our conversations about sexual ethics as opposed to end them. Right. I mean, this is the the thing that I think is really striking about the book and, and that I think is so important. One, one always feels kind of slightly tremulous about making an argument that seems to dismiss what is the, the mainstream of, of 
you know, political argument on the left about sex, sexual desire, about sort of the relationship, especially between men and women. I think we can come on to talk about the ways in which like, this this resonates elsewhere. But so maybe we could get a sense then of what you know you call you call consent culture, which is seems to me to be the the, the intellectual framework that. And I mean, I suppose it's interesting in some ways because the other side of feeling tremulous about, you know, mounting a critique of this stuff and a critique from inside and from on the same side as as this struggle is, to, is that lots of this emerges from not especially kind of academic circles, but emerges from, you know, kind of bootstrapped feminist practice, from conversations online, from stuff that's going on on the internet, and you know, especially in the latest wave, but it's a longer thing than that as well. And that brings to the front all sorts of kind of complex and, and, and difficult stuff about, you know, ideas of publicness and the way in which these conversations have to be had in public, the, the ways in which people have conversations about sex and desire and sexual violence in particular. Um, and, and they seem to have a, at, at their base this sense that, one, there is something very, you know, obvious and clear that's called consent. It's a moment that happens um, and, and that's, uh, you know, that's at the center of our politics and we have you know this solution to the problem of sex and the problem of desire and this is we've got it and all it needs now is to be applied and then underneath that there seems to be whether it's clearly articulated or not uh, a sense about what desire is and how accessible it is to us uh, that that seems to me to be you know, rather too easy actually you know, and, and this is all stuff that's meat for your argument in the book. Uh, I, what's your sense of what this misses? I think one of the things it misses is an understanding of how pervasive risk management is as a way that we think about sexuality in the public realm. You know, one of the arguments I make in the book is that consent rhetoric and you know it's it is you know use the word tremulous and that's right you know I, I want to be really careful there are lots of amazing people doing amazing consent education work who you know who articulate all this kind of stuff about you know consent is ongoing and desire is shifting and um and that's all for the good but I think you know when I talk about kind of consent rhetoric I'm thinking especially of the kind of um you know the sort of popular media discussions of it that are also trying to be very well meaning in their aims but we lose that that kind of rhetoric loses sight, I think, of just how ingrained this thinking is that in order to protect women from sexual violence, the burden is placed on the individual to manage this inevitable risk that's out there in the world. And this risk is out there in the world. It's manifestly out there in the world. And women learn that, you know, from day one, not only in terms of what happens to them, but in terms of the narratives that they're told, this kind of um you know, constantly pessimistic, promissory sort of future that on in one sense is just being, you know, straight with women about the dangers that they incur. But on the other hand, I think can become this really unconscious way in which not only do we manage our own lives, you know, how we get home at night and saying to our friends, um, you know, text me when you're home and all these things that are just about taking pragmatic steps to obviate a risk that's in the world, but it infects our kind of modes of thinking to the extent that consent rhetoric itself, I think, partakes of this mode of address to women. So just as, you know, 
safety campaigns are criticised for giving women advice on how to not get raped as opposed to giving men advice on how not to rape someone. I think the um, consent rhetoric has inadvertently partaken of that and still places the burden on women to you know, look inside themselves, you know, find their sexual desire, partly because they're emancipated, sex positive, you know, gung-ho, confident feminists of the present, as opposed to the meek women of the past. So that, you know, that rhetoric gets entangled, I think, with a kind of, you know, the last 20, 30, 40 years of feminist discourse itself, and that kind of empowerment feminist discourse of the public realm, in such a way that this question of how to have sex that is consensual and safe, but also how to have pleasure just becomes privatized and sort of contracted out to the individual. And we lose sight of the way in which, you know, our horizons are very low in this respect. And, and, you know, it's a tricky thing to talk about because, um, you know, there are strands in the book, I think, where I, you know, I express a certain kind of utopian, wishful thinking about how actually we could large, you know, and enlargen, that's not a word, you know, widen the conversation so that our horizons weren't just about finding ways for individual women to manage that risk, but how to actually kind of increase pleasure for everybody. But, you know, obviously I'm very mindful of the fact that sexual violence is a risk and we have to manage that risk. But how could we imagine a form of discourse around it that wouldn't have such low expectations? And low expectations that, by the way, tend to fall on the side of men. <laughs> I mean, I, I wonder, there's, there's something about the kind of the, the direction of your thinking in the book, which sort of, you know, uh, unfolds, you know, and it's very interesting, like these, this sequence of chapters, which all of which are linked to each other, and it ends in, in this, um, you know, exploration of vulnerability, which we can come through, which seems to me to be, you know, sort of the, in, in some ways, the sort of central ethical preoccupation, right, which is to say that on the one hand, we are all already vulnerable in one way or another and there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into just denying that as a fact um and then we are unequally vulnerable of course um and lots of the the stuff that 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 sort of emerges as a critique of consent culture seems to be about sort of denying or, or wanting to deny any kind of sense of vulnerability, any kind of space of vulnerability whatsoever. And so I wonder if we could talk a little bit about some of the critics of, so I am talking here, some of the feminist critics rather than misogynist critics mm -hmm. of consent culture, because I, you know, we don't need to think about yeah. them for the time being. Um, <laughs> although I think it's very interesting in the book, you know, you pick up on the ways in which, um, you know, pick up artists write about um, sexuality and write about desire, which I think is actually you know, very often pretty telling um, in ways that, that perhaps they don't expect. Um, but sticking with, with sort of feminist critics of the time being, I'm thinking here of, of um, Laura Kipnis or, or, or Roy for, or people like that who, who have a sort of anxiety about the centrality of, of trauma to our accounts of sexuality, right? Who are, who are you know, and I read these people, or at least I read them in, in, especially in quotations in this book. It's been a long time since I picked them up outside of it um and i read them and i i think you know i it's not an argument it's an argument i find kind of quite repugnant in some ways right which is just which is essentially kind of pick yourself up dust yourself off stop being so pathetic but just occasionally and i think it's in in i think it's in in you know one of those two writing about their own arguments 
10 or 15 years before mm. where they're talking about wanting to get away from this sense of being a traumatized subject of of have you know as as being a woman writing about sex as having to uh uh you know write about trauma in particular uh, and so i wonder if you have a sense of how it is that a conversation around trauma in particular has become so central to the way in which we talk about sex. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, um, of course, there's, there's so many things <laughs> that your questions bring up. It's, so, it's great. I think that it can be really useful to look at aspects of feminist uh, debates around these things as symptoms of trauma in a way. And that's often a very unpopular stance to take. Um, but, you know, the fact is that women are disproportionately subject to sexual violence and many women are wandering around in the world, uh, you know, with that, the legacy of those experiences, including in their own sexual lives. And I think, you know, that traces of that are so visible in so many debates. I mean, so many, including debates about uh, trans women and, you know, all all that stuff, I think. And it's it's very, it's very, very complicated because... I think no one wants to take up the position of the victim in the culture. It's a really, really uncomfortable position to take. And I think a lot of feminism of the last few decades has been about keeping, you know, the specter of the wounded woman at bay, um, the weak woman, the woman who didn't manage to withstand the bullying of the men. And and that's, it's so, it's so central to those two books, the, um, the Morning After by Katie Royfe and Unwanted Advances by Laura Kipnis, um, which were written, I don't know, 15, 15 years apart, roughly. I may have the dates wrong. Um, but I think both those books, and they're very different in some ways. And I have to say, the Katie Royfe book, I think, is absolutely fascinating. I read it at the time and then came back to it in the last couple of years and was absolutely gripped by how wrong and also how right she is in some ways and and that's what i find really interesting about those two writers is that they they're really good examples of people who grasp the insight that some of this language that's a kind of legal language that has you know spread like dye through our ethical and our political thinking is not adequate to the task they know that but they're thinking stops there almost it's kind of inhibited by that and then Katie Royfe wrote this book recently, The Power Notebooks, where she's sort of riffing on questions of power. And it's a much more personal book. And she has this insight that some of what she was writing about in that work, in that, in that work, in that book, um, were, were wishes that it was an identification with the powerful woman. And I think it's so useful for us to think about that in so many aspects of ethical and political thought and so many aspects of feminism, you know, it's it's horrible to experience sexual violence. It's horrible to be traumatized by sexual violence. It's horrible to be seen as the victim of sexual violence. It's horrible to be seen as traumatized. So the amount of work that goes into managing that and sort of pushing that away, I think interlaces so much with, um, you know, things like lean in kind of feminism, um, this sort of confidence feminism that I talk about that's a term um, that Shani Orgad and Ros Gill talk about, you know, this um, this kind of conflation of feminist emancipation with individual success and individual empowerment and strength. And I think that so much violence in the world comes from the insistence on strength and the keeping at bay 
a vulnerability. And, you know, in respect to women's experiences in sex, I think that um, that women's vulnerability, not just to sexual violence, but their vulnerability to the world, their vulnerability if they're, you know, the penetrated subject, and of course that, you know, that applies to all kinds of sex, um, that vulnerability is used against them. It's used against by them by people who see vulnerability as as a, a sort of, you know, an opening opening of opportunity of an opportunity to domination and exploitation. That is what I want to refuse, not because I'm denying that we're vulnerable, but because I'm trying to say that um, vulnerability is a condition not just of gendered life, it's a condition of life. It's also a phenomenon of men's psychic and physical lives, but we have all bought the lie that it's not. And I think that there's a tremendous amount of violence done towards women, not just towards women, um, in the name of this lie that men are invulnerable. And again, I have to be very careful about that. You know, that's one of the sort of tremulous areas because that is not the same as, say, as denying that men exert greater physical power or greater social power, political power. You know, men do exert those powers and they know that and they use that against women. However, I don't want to endorse a feminist discourse around sexuality in the body that doesn't try to you know, break open some of those assumptions and say, hang on a minute, you think you're not vulnerable. Why is it then that men find the experience of failed erections so humiliating? What, what does that mean? You know, the, the clinging on to power, the way in which that power can be so easily shattered, that is exactly what leads to violence towards women. You know, men hate women so that they don't have to hate themselves. <laughs> so, you know, vulnerability is... It's difficult because I, I don't want to fetishize it and I don't want to mm. romanticize it. But I, I do think, and you know, I talk about this in the book, that vulnerability is part of the experience of sexual pleasure for, for all of us. Because if you're going to experience sexual pleasure, you have to let go. <laughs> you just have to let go to experience pleasure. And you have to be vulnerable in order to explore what comes next. But again, that is not a ground for saying, oh, well, mistakes happen, bad sex happens, mm -hmm. stop whinging about consent. It's a ground for saying, okay, given that we're all vulnerable, how can we make that the starting point of our sexual ethics rather than the point at which the shutters come down and we resign ourselves to violence? The, the book is bookended by these two, two quotations, one from Jacqueline Rose, one from Gillian Rose, mm -hmm. um, whom I, I think regular listeners will know for me, a kind of key influence on my thinking. And, and I, I feel like I can detect here in, in, in the kind of argument you're making something that descends, especially from, from Gillian Rose's thinking about, which is very much about, you know, refusing the sort of easy closure, which is, you know, given by, by taking, you know, a too rapid or too peremptory um, a solution to a problem and recognizing that one has to stay, you know, in the middle um, in the social um, and, and and in the difficulty that that is presented in you know in in these problems um, and and it's hard because you know I think very often and it's one of the things that I really admire about the book is that 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 it is asking us to stay in this difficulty and say well actually lots of the concepts that we're bringing to the table aren't really adequate to it 
they might be socially necessary they might be politically necessary at various times but mm. you know actually in the long run it doesn't look like they're sufficient to it and i think you know it's it, it it's striking to me that we search for you know particularly when it comes to the question of sex we search for you know conceptual frameworks which emerge from medicine which emerge from law uh, and which then come and structure and pattern you know the ways in which we approach sexuality partly because they offer us a framework for something that is very very difficult to deal with which is tremendously difficult to deal with and so i wonder if we could talk a little bit about that about the relationship between law and and sexuality and, and the way in which we talk and think about sex in particular because i mean that that as you as you say is is something that underlies you know the the you know the politics of consent and consent culture in particular um uh, and it's obvious to me that we of course we need legal frameworks for for talking and thinking about sex but but is you know do, you know it, i suppose one of the things that that i was left wondering from the book is you know how how we move beyond thinking in legalistic terms about sexuality without diminishing the need which is the obvious need you know for defending and very obviously the story of the united states in the past few years um is a, is 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 a case in point about the need to defend those legal advances mm. yeah i think that's such a good question you know i want to sort of again find that sort of tightrope course of you know on the one hand wanting to question the extent to which legal concepts have kind of filled out our thinking to our disadvantage, I think, while at the same time saying, you know, the law should be made better. You know, the law has uses, obviously, and um, and can also be an important port of sort of recourse for individuals. And I think that's, you know, that's something that's not to be forgotten or sort of underestimated is, is um, you know, because the law occupies such a kind of central place in our minds and the criminal justice system occupies an extremely problematic but central place in the culture i think it's it's also important to remember you know how for individual women who are victims of sexual violence it can be understandably gratifying if the law gets it right or comes down on the right side or you know punishes somebody or so you know i have very kind of complex feelings about some of the, some of the kind of discourses around that because obviously you know mostly the law doesn't really work in women's favor and it certainly doesn't work in the favor of all kinds of marginalized people but you know then there has to be a distinction between consensual and non-consensual sex um but i suppose you know in in the book i don't get into a lot of the sort of legal kind of um, arguments about different notions of consent. I mean, I talk a bit about the difference between, you know, the, like the move to affirmative consent and kind of debates around it. But um, I think my main my main reservation is to do with the way in which I think we have leaned on legal language to do our political thought for us. It's a way of not engaging with those sort of messy questions. And again, um, you know, people like Laura Kipnis and Katie Royfe have made a version of this argument, which is that not not all sexual experience can be understood and cast through the lens of assault, and that it's problematic to do that. You know, that actually there is this realm of bad sex, which isn't assault, and they're perfectly right. But that's where we should start from. And I think that, you know, what's kind of 
so disturbing about um, the bad sex that there is. And, you know, the research, I mean, it's so, it's so depressing, the research into, you know, just the statistics around sexual violence, but not just that, but, you know, how, um, how much less pleasure women get from sex when they're asked about it in research. So, you know, questions of physical pain, questions of orgasm, and, you know, and maybe it's something we can talk about as well. Like, you know, I don't think orgasm is the the definition or the pinnacle of sexual pleasure or, or emotional fulfillment, but, you know, it's a measure of something and men are reaching orgasm much more than women are. And women tend to understand sexual, like a good sexual experience as one that doesn't involve sexual pain, which, you know, the bar is just so low and I want to raise the bar, even while I don't think that, um, you know, sexual desire should like swamp our ideas of emancipation, but of political emancipation. Um, yeah, I think that this this question of bad sex, I, I almost want to take it out of those conversations to do with the law. And I want to say, not that bad sex happens, you know, deal with it, but bad sex happens because we live in a culture where we facilitate the entitlement to pleasure and to other bodies by men. And we do not do that for women, not that we should just do a simple reversal, but that we really have to look elsewhere. I, I, I almost want people to turn away from the law and to look at almost everything else because I think that's where not just the burden of the problem lies, but potentially the burden of the solution lies. It's not a, a legal concept can do certain useful things, but it's dangerous when we let it do that other thinking for us because as I argue in the book, that doesn't work out well for women. And, and, and that's the paradox that, that I find so disturbing, you know, this kind of gung-ho injunction to women to speak their desire and know their desire and, you know, move forward into sex as these confident neoliberal subjects that are managing risk responsibly. But what happens when they can't do that? What happens? Who wins in that? It's not women. And so much of that rhetoric is about providing a form of insurance. It's about using a legalistic and a contractual model of sexual relations to let men off the hook preemptively and to teach women that the problem is theirs. And that imbalance is what we should be really looking at, not thinking, how can we tweak consent as a legal notion? You know, we do need to get consent right legally, but it's not even half of the problem. You mentioned that the injunction, which is uh, directed towards women by lots of these sort of shiny and bright feminist tracts that, that um, not just women, that all of us should know our desires. And one of the things that I really enjoyed in the, the book is is about you know is this question are these sort of conflicting theories of desire that you sort of examine and um, spend some time thinking about because it seems to me you know this is this is the direction which this kind of thinking takes us which is that we have to have an account of desire and it's a very difficult thing to properly take account of and so you know I think maybe it would be useful just to get a sense of of the, the theories of desire that are out there and where they fall short. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the stuff I talk about in the book is um, mostly this phenomena that I've been sort of observing for the last, I guess, 
20 years or so. <laughs> I mean, I did a PhD on this a long time ago. Um, and so it's primarily centers around a psychologist called Rosemary Basson, who I think is, she's really fascinating. And she's done this research um, working with patients. She's a clinician. And her argument is um, that women experience sexual desire differently from men. And that sexual desire for women is often responsive. It's responsive to the context that they're in. And that includes, you know, things, I mean, the kind of, you know, classic corny women's magazines type things about, you know, your bed is nice and sexy and neat or whatever it is. Um, but also, you know, your socioeconomic situation, whether you're experiencing domestic violence, whether you're doing all the housework, you know, all, all that stuff. Um, and so it, her work is very attuned to how the conditions for desire for women are not great. <laughs> and she's elaborated this theory whereby um, desire for women isn't, isn't just sort of there, isn't present, isn't kind of spontaneous in the way that it tends to be for men. And that therefore we have to think differently about women's sexual problems, right? So we have to have, uh, you know, models in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, that um, that doesn't assume this very kind of linear mechanical model of desire, because she argues that women's experience of desire is more circular. So. And she actually defines desire as arousal in context. And so she gives the example of, you know, if you've been with somebody for a long time, for example, and, you know, in the early days, you were like, just want sex all the time. And then, you know, with familiarity and just, you know, the drag of life, you, you're sometimes maybe up for sex or you, you're sometimes up for it. Maybe you'll come around to it, but it isn't a kind of burning desire. And so, you know, she has these models of kind of it how to improve women's sexual lives that that pay attention to that to that context and that don't importantly don't see that lack of kind of spontaneous just you know i need to have sex now and i'm fantasizing as i walk down the street that don't see the lack of those things as um a criterion for a diagnosis of dysfunction so a lot of it was about these classifications in uh, the american psychiatric association system and I think I find it absolutely fascinating as a model because I think it does really important things. It it suggests that, you know, you can experience desire in different ways at different times and that it's it's a political issue. It's context dependent. And it, you know, women's lives may not be conducive to feeling really sexy all the time. Um but I think that the way that model has been taken up, and interestingly, it gets taken up by pickup artists and, you know, people who use that as an opportunity to push women into sex. And it's and, and it's a kind of a very fraught model, I think, because it does open up this question of um, what do you do if somebody isn't like absolutely raring to go, but might be able to be talked into sex? That of course is kind of a gift to men who want to push women into sex who might actually not want to have sex. But the fact is it may be empirically true that for a lot of women, also, for political and social reasons, their desire isn't like there, available to them the whole time, partly because they don't live in a culture where their desire is being elicited mm -hmm. around them. So, so I find it useful as a way of thinking about how desire is like invited 
for you. And I do think, you know, men and women do largely live in different cultures in that respect. I mean, heterosexual men and women. Um, so, you know, there've been, I mean, I, t I too critique this model in the book and I, and there's brilliant work. There's a book by, um, Oh, I've gone blank on her name. It's called Diagnosing Desire. I'll, it'll come back to me in a sec. That's that's about this model partly. Um, it's worrying because it opens up the door to um, justifying a kind of form of heterosexual labor of love, right? You know, the labor that women do to keep relationships alive and to, and to also have to provide sex for men who experience their sexual desire as a biological drive, which if that desire is denied, if that deep biological drive is denied, who knows what they might do? They might go and commit sexual violence. So it's a model that I think um, is really, uh, I, well, I have really mixed feelings about it. But the way I like to think about it is its potential in actually making us alert to, to whose desire gets ignited and what that means for your you know, differing experiences of sexual desire. And if we take it, if we start, again, if we start from that position, that our sexual desires are cultural artifacts as much as their biological needs, then how can we think about the culture that might actually, you know, have a more equitable distribution of hedonism, as Joseph Fischel would say? <laughs> it's funny the things I go back to when I'm trying to think about desire, which are which are very which are, are largely literary, which is to do with my education. But you know, I find myself back thousands of years ago in with the Greeks and with the Bacchae, um, you know, with the, this sense that there is uh the the reasoning self or the the that reason you know does you know finds itself humbled before desire pretty often actually and that that all too often we think we have it um in our hands when we don't and you know i mean i there's a there's a degree of humility i think is is helpful when coming coming to the table with this stuff because you know one of the the things that's striking about about the way in which you explore these models is 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 the number of times at the end of one of your descriptions there's just a line that makes you realize how much uh how much depends on what we bring to the table with us already and i think so one of the the places that that this takes us is is a, an argument that you make and that you've been making in, in this conversation which is the bad sex is a political issue right and i, th I think that's true and yet, that claim is one that people back off from a lot, right? Because sexual violence, that's a political issue, right? But bad sex, well, is that really the proper domain for politics? And it seems to me that this claim troubles both parts of, of the phrase, right? It, 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 you know, it asks us about what we count as bad sex and what we count as politics. Um, and, and you know, I mean, one way in which, of course, this this happens is is that, you know, I think it was visible through the kind of rise and then kind of uh, retreat of, of Me Too from the headlines, was the number of, and it wasn't just men, but it was very largely men, men who were saying, well, you know, this is a sort of, you know, this is this is like Robespierre in 1793, the the guillotine's going to get going for anyone who's ever had any desire whatsoever. You know, the, the, but you know, the more serious form of it was this kind of fear that 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 a politics centered around this stuff might upend the entirety of 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 the edifice of sexual relations. And so, you know, I, I you know, the the, the 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 implication of this seemed to be that that their sense was that 
what was being recognized as violence here, or at least potentially violence, or at least in some sense, kind of exploitation or inequality, ran through the entirety of sexual relations between men and women, um, right through the way in which our culture was run. Um, I mean, obviously the implication is that is that they thought themselves beneficiaries of this rather than, you know, somehow kind of also, you know, rather mutilated by it. it are they onto something? Are they right? I think that some of those conversations around Me Too in a funny way, you know, they are also about this issue of um, what the kind of apparatus is that we try to bring to these difficulties. Um, I don't quite know what I think about this, but but I think that... Um, you know, I'm I'm skeptical again of of a sort of too legalistic or sort of legislative or top down approach to these kinds of things. You know, for instance, in the workplace, um, you know, on the whole, I think. Well, I mean, I think that people shouldn't really hit on their subordinates because the relationships of power are too. They make it difficult for people to say no. <laughs> um, so, you know, in the workplace, I think generally people, it's a good thing that people are being made more mindful about relationships of power, because I suppose, you know, that's one of my um, problems with um, some of the critiques of consent is that they, um, they deny that unequal power relations exist in the world. And actually, I think it's, it's a good thing in general that we are reminding people and ourselves again and again what relationships of power we have to one another. I mean, I think I say towards the end of the book, you know, I don't, I don't think that there really is a world without negotiations of power and without imbalances of power. I mean, especially the world we're in, right? I mean, let alone a world we might imagine, but there are inequalities of power. Um, and that and that is why you know it's really important for us to think about what enables bad sex, what enables harassment, and what enables sexual assault. You know, all of those things are to do with um, you know people looking for opportunities to to dominate or to assert their will over someone else. Um, but I guess I also don't want necessarily to um, to just articulate a wish for a world devoid of power or also to overlook the um you know the fact that that we can negotiate power right and that that's also i think a really important skill that is at risk of being um you know just glossed over um in the way in which we talk about sex because you know in in the consent conversation this kind of this like fetishization of of sort of you know yes means yes or no means no or just you know say what say what you want um, and know what you want, I think it's actually quite dangerous because it takes away the opportunity to encounter the other in their otherness. So um, regardless of kind of socioeconomic inequalities, just being in relation to the other person is to be in relation to their otherness, their difference from you, the fact that they will have desires that are different from yours. And I think that it's so important that we learn the skills of how to encounter that difference. And I'm sort of, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm sort of, I'm thinking also of things to do with um, 
you know, the identification should not be the beginning, should not be the condition from which we begin our political thinking or our, or our political political sympathies. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 we have to we have to encounter the different desires of the other. And that is also what sex is. And that some of that negotiation is actually what makes life rich and pleasurable. So I don't, I don't want to sort of wipe the slate clean of difference and negotiations of, of power. Um, but it's how we encounter that, you know, and, and I think in parts of the book, I talk about this in relation to ideals of masculinity, you know, and I say that actually any model of consent can prove itself worthless if people are intent on seeing the other person's difference just as an obstacle to be surmounted. Um, and if men are not encouraged to um, to think about the otherness of the person and also maybe potentially to take pleasure in the other person's difference of desire, you know, because it seems to me that this kind of model of someone doesn't want what you want and you have to persuade them to want what you want. What if what if you could experience pleasure, even sexual pleasure, in having different desires? And obviously not making somebody do something they don't want to do, but that that encounter with the otherness of the other. And, you know, Lacan, I think, is really useful on the kind of irreducible difference of the other, that actually we're storing problems up for ourselves if we try to imagine that we can ever kind of bridge that gap and that maybe that is also an important place for sexual ethics you know if if we're going to wait until a world of absolute equality before we can have consensual and exciting sex that is never going to happen and it'd be nice to have some of that now (laughs) (laughs) well this is one of the things i think is is you know that that i see is one of the reasons that you know quite substantial parts of the left will shy away from questions like this right which is that you know, and as I said, it you know the question troubles both parts of the equation, right? Like, it, it, you know, one of the things thinking about sex and desire tells us is that our motives are not always clear to us. And if our motives aren't always clear to us, then you know, what might that uncover in like why we're doing politics or why we you know, are involved in kind of political struggle? You know, I mean, it, it, you know, if we take desire seriously, it might end up upending lots of the things that we think about as as being stable foundations. So I can, you know, I can see the, I can see the desire to 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 fence it off somewhere, um, but it seeps through anyway. I mean, <laughs> that's the, that's the thing about this stuff is you can't, you, you know, as we we know very well that repression, you know, is leaky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so so you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, there's all sorts of, of avenues here that I think are useful or that might you know, require that the, the, the left to think, you know, more seriously about design. And, and, you know, I, I find myself reaching for, for people like René Girard and, you know, the way in which desires are, don't arise in this kind of pure fashion from within ourselves, but arise in, in, you know, in imitation of, of others' desires. And I think that's a hugely important part of, of this account. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I sort of obliquely touch on that in a way in the book, but I, but I think, I mean, I, if I were writing this now, I would go deeper into that. I'd make that a bit more of an explicit part of the book. That um, I mean, I think at some point I say, you know, we shouldn't make like uh, our susceptibility to the other's desire a source of stigma. Of course, we're susceptible to the other's desire. Why should that be a weakness? Why should that be used against me? That 
if somebody wants something from me, there might be part of me that wants to give it to them. We're relational creatures. Like we, the only reason we're alive is because of that mimetic desire. We would not have been fed if that weren't the case. So, you know, I think a kind of maybe slightly subtextual argument in the book is, you know, that that strand of of um, feminist thought that has sought to resist the kind of fetishization of this really island-like autonomy, you know, and, and thinking instead about autonomy as relational. How can you relate to others in a way that um, will enhance their capacity to make decisions for themselves, but might also happen to coincide with what you want? And, you know, resisting this idea that, um, and I think this is part of kind of contemporary sort of public popular feminism and you know some of the texts i talk about kind of you know really useful guides to sex education and you know empowerment for young women and you know i think that literature needs to exist because you know because the bar is so low but i suppose my feeling is that there's a real danger there of encouraging women to experience themselves as only ever being able to be safe by being walled in and that is sometimes true, right? And it makes sense to me. And I, you know, I know this from my own life. Sometimes the way to deal with fear and the risk of sexual violence is to wall yourself in, is to say, no, I, I don't want this, or I do want this, or I want this, but I don't want that, and to feel very inflexible. And I think that makes perfect strategic sense. It's a strategic position. It's a position of risk management. But what do we risk losing? We risk losing, um, we risk devaluing something that is so important to human life, which is to be interested in the other, to be moved by them. You know, being moved by someone else's desire or their need or their plight or their delight is what makes political improvement possible. So, and it's also what makes sexual pleasure possible. And there's, there's pleasure to be had in giving something to somebody. And I'm, I'm worried about this kind of, this insistence on just discovering who you are in isolation privately and then going out in the world with this armor and it you know it's a tool it's a weapon to protect yourself from violence and again you know of course we have to protect ourselves from violence but i don't want to buy into the discourse that has f- forgotten to notice that that is a strategic way of trying to protect ourselves i would like to live in a world where I could take more risks. Maybe the, the, this ties to the, the sort of, you know, rather wonderful, playful Foucauldian phrase that that makes you that gives you your title. Tomorrow's sex will be good again. I, I just want to to just for a moment. I I I'd like to because you know there's such a, a a kind of amazing structure in just that sentence, which is that. Um, you know, there was a time when sex was good and it will be again. What is that? What is going on there with that structure of imagination? What is that 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 kind of fantasy about that there being a, a time at which both was and will be good again? Well, you know, what's really funny about it is that the, in the original French, it, it isn't again. It's à demain le bon sex. <laughs> um, but, you know, I used the English translation. And, um, but I mean, either way, I mean, I think, you know, in the French... It, it, then it therefore raises that question of, you know, did Foucault actually believe that sex had ever <laughs> been good at all? Whereas in the English translation, you know, the idea is is like both this kind of nostalgia, this, this yearning relationship for some pre-Eden sort of state, and then 
this wishful relationship to the future. And I think, you know, I mean, I'm crazy about that book, the, the Will to Knowledge. I mean, I think it is so beautifully written. It's so, it's actually a very kind of sexy book. It's mm-hmm. incredibly seductive and playful and flirtatious. And, and I think it's actually for all those reasons that a lot of people are very critical of it because it's, you know, it's highly seductive and, um, it's just so mischievous and amazing. <laughs> but that, I think he plays so well in, especially in the first couple of sections of that book with this, um, future tense but that is already laden with the sense of what we've lost and and i think that really suffuses a lot of the conversations that we have around sex you know there's some kind of idea i mean this is you know where i suppose you know my sort of psychoanalytic bent comes in is also that you know when we're when we're looking forward towards this kind of beautiful utopia of good sex it's also always something that we're trying to return to that some kind of bliss, some, you know, some merging with the maternal body or, you know, all, all of that um, kind of prehistory. Um, and, I, and, and I sort of, you know, I mean, I'd used it in the text before I'd found it as a title. And then, and then I thought, oh my God, that's, that's the title. Because I think so much of what we kind of repeatedly, you know, compulsively do is try to find ways to finally get to the truth. And Foucault articulates that so well in that book, that kind of, okay, finally we're here, finally we've got the tools. And of course, you know, every decade we're like, oh, we've, we've found the tools. And in the period he was writing, you know, he's writing this kind of very wry sideways take on, um, you know, the much more optimistic uh, counter-cultural figures that he sat in such complicated relationship to. Um, and I, I, yeah, I wanted to take something of that flavor of, um, of kind of, you know, skepticism, I suppose. But I think it's also, you know, sometimes I think about this book as it's my own tussle with optimism versus pessimism. You know, it's, I want to be optimistic. I want to think, you know, that, certain things are happening in the culture, especially in the last few years, that actually are grounds for optimism. There are conversations that that have been had that I think weren't had before, even though I also get this sense of like, you know, feminist déjà vu of like, oh yes, now the the next kind of spectacle in the media that's going to resolve everything and then we have to keep having it again, which is its own source of kind of depressive frustration. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I, I do, in a way I want this book to be optimistic, but it is also, I think, quite a dark book. And I think that part of it is um, is about this kind of reckoning with death, actually. And the feeling that certain forms of, especially kind of contemporary popular feminism, really, they're not reckoning with the death drive. <laughs> but also, they're not reckoning enough with the effects of this kind of deathly narrative that we're sold all the time. You know, not just because of statistics of sexual violence or our own experience of encountering sexual violence, but because the culture is constantly reminding us and is constantly warning us, if you do if you do this, you might get raped. Mm-hmm. Oh, and if you do this, you might get raped. But the culture is also saying to us, so you know the way you might get raped and murdered and left in a ditch? Well, now while you're in bed, forget about that. Forget about that and be the confident woman who can suddenly let go of this deathly awareness and also then be judged if, you know, your sexuality is in some sense trying to play with or grapple with or master 
that narrative of death. And that, and that's why, you know, I, I, in places in the book, I use various queer theorists because I think that some of the most exciting kind of writing in the last many decades has been queer theorists grappling with the specter of death, you know, as, you know, gay men in particular have had to like really grapple with the AIDS crisis, but also just how much people want them dead. <laughs> and I sometimes think of this line by um, this theorist called Bobby Benedicto, and I heard him give a talk, and I don't remember the context of it, but he said, have we ceded the erotics of death to those who would want us dead? And I think about that a lot. And I think that part of this book is is trying to say there is a way in which women are instructed in death all the time. And now you're asking me to embody this like positive affect, you know, this constant statement of positivity that Sarah Ahmed talks about really beautifully. I refuse that. I refuse that. And I want us to bring that kind of deathly awareness back into it and say all these things are ways of both trying, you know, these kind of injunctions about consent are ways of trying on the one hand to remind me of my impending death and to insist that I forget it. I refuse that. Like if we're going to, if we're going to take it seriously, then let's take it seriously. There's, um, there's something that, that you, you, you were talking there about, um, really wanting the books to be optimistic, but, but, um, perhaps that it's also a dark book and, and but i think that's you know it, it reminds me of uh jonathan dolomore's writing about um sex and writing and 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 you know theory uh, you know, queer theory sexual theory stuff like that and and he writes about what he calls wishful theory right which is 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 theory that makes things simpler than it is um you know partly out of a desire you know to flatter oneself partly out of a desire simply to make things graspable and sometimes out of a desire to to uh, to conceptualize one's historical novelty right and there's a, a wonderful kind of exchange somewhere you know in in one of his essays about you know with a student who was you know who had to be gently reminded that perhaps people historically also had lesbian sex. <laughs> um, but, but right. I mean, but this is, you know, this is a, a, a wishful theory, I think extends well beyond, um, you know, feminist and queer thought, wishful theory, very common in other forms of political theory as well, particularly on the left. Um, I, I wonder if, if we might talk about a, a particular kind of wishful theory, which is that, which is to do with the body and the centrality of the body. And this is a form of wishful theory, in fact, that comes you know, not from the quarters that one might expect it, but is in fact seeded throughout culture. Uh, it's there in the search for a female Viagra, which I think is one of the most entertaining <laughs> portions of, of, of the book. Um, but it seems to me to be rooted in this sense that, that goes much beyond that, um, which is that the body somehow can tell us the truth. And that can be an, an you know an absolutely um, graspable, but also um, you know a very simple truth-telling device. Mm -hmm. This seems to me to be quite a popular uh, belief. It's that you know there's um, uh, lots of, of stuff on this about a, a book that's popular, which I confess I haven't read about the body keeping score mm -hmm. and stuff like this. So the way in which you know uh, uh, experiences of violence change the way we you know the you know the way we hold ourselves now this is 
seems to me to be very obviously true, but but somehow that there is a, a truth that emerges from the body. So I wonder if you could tell us maybe a little bit about what the search for a female Viagra tells us, because I just think it's extraordinary, but maybe also a little bit about that, that the idea that truth can just emanate somehow from the body. Yeah, it's really, it's quite a fascinating area. So the search for female Viagra, you know, happened in the very immediate wake of Viagra because it was a blockbuster, massive success drug financially, whether it was actually physically and psychologically successful is less clear. Um, but so there was this very quick search for the equivalent in women. And originally it was, that search was conducted at um, at the kind of analogous level. So about sort of engorgement, you know, the equivalence of erectile engorgement, basically. So drugs that would have a similar effect on um, women's genitals that would then magically make them really intersex and enjoy sex. And that didn't happen. And what was interesting about that was how quickly the narrative then turned into this kind of reification of women's complexity. And, oh, well, you know, these these drugs failed. Therefore, um, it's evidence that women are actually very psychological and emotional creatures when it comes to sex. So we have to then um, develop drugs that tar- target, you know, the, the kind of the, the central nervous system, the, the emotional centers of the brain, you know, a lot of very kind of uh, compartmentalizing language around the body and the brain. Um, but also, you know, these drugs basically have not really worked. And there, there's constant efforts to um, find the Viagra for women. And, um, and it, you know, it seemed that like, even if you engorge women's genitals, it doesn't have any effect on whether they want to have sex. Um, but there have been lots of drugs that have tried to affect, um, you know, increases in desire. But it's very, it's a very tricky thing for pharmaceutical companies because they have been quite reluctant to be seen as creating aphrodisiacs. So then there's these very kind of slippery slates of ha- slates of hand. I don't even know how to pronounce that about quite what these drugs are doing. And it's really striking in the case of um, Viagra, you know, for men, that the rhetoric that um, Pfizer used was um, that it was just a mechanical dysfunction, right? It wasn't about men not having sexual desire. Of course, men have sexual desire. That's what a man is. All the erectile dysfunction was, was a, a little mechanical problem in the, you know, the links in the chain and the drug just triggered that link to work again and everything was back to normal. That distinction whereby the man knows himself, the man has sexual desire, knows his desire, but that his body is uh, sometimes just, you know, engineering gone wrong. That distinction is completely flipped in the case of women because increasingly the narrative has been about women that they don't know their own desire, which is also something that I'm invested in. I'll come to that. so a lot of research that has got lots and lots of attention in the media has been um, that women, on the one hand, are like bizarrely lustful, right? They, their bodies respond to everything. They're turned on by loads of different kinds of stimuli, including animals having sex. And, they're, and, and they're, they respond with physiological arousal to, um, to anything, regardless of whether it aligns with their sexual orientation. Whereas for men, that doesn't tend to be the case. Their bodies manifest excitement in relation to what they say they're turned on by. This has led to this language of women being divided and, uh, you know, puzzling, lots of discord and out of touch with themselves. 
it's very fraught because some of that discourse is right and some of it is very well-meaning and it's onto something, which is that women experience the sexual double standard to a huge degree. They may feel inhibited from saying what they find sexually exciting because they live in a punitive sexual culture. They may also not be able to get access to that desire because they live in a punitive sexual culture and their desire is used against them in court cases and you know many other realms. So there's something that that discourse is onto. But what this has led to um, is this idea that the body speaks the truth and we can just read women's real sexual desire from their body. Um, and you know, the figure here is the plethysmograph that's inserted into the vagina and that reads the, you know, the, the lubrication, etc. And in the book, I, I explore the kind of resonances between that and the, um, the polygraph, which is a technology that we're so invested in, even though countless decades of research has shown how useless it is, but it still gets used in trials. It gets used in police interrogation services. It gets used in immigration centers where people who are seeking asylum on the basis of persecution for being gay are subjected to tests where they're, you know, they're shown pornography. Sorry, I'm talking about the plethysmograph now, um, to, to detect their true desires, right? So we're really invested in this idea that we can read the body. And in the book, I argue that, um, well, first of all, that's really dangerous because pickup artists use that logic and say she was, she was gagging for it because she was wet. And this trope of wetness is so pervasive, but we know that women experience not just lubrication, but they can experience orgasm during sexual assault. So obviously it's more complicated, you know, Lubrication does not equal desire or enthusiasm, and it's really dangerous to insist that it does. So in part of the book, I say that in sex, perhaps more than anywhere else, we need to be interested in what people say rather than just what their bodies do. But that's not enough because people don't always know what they want. We can say all kinds of things, and we may not mean them, or we may mean them, but they turn out not to be true. And that's the really difficult space that I want to open up and say, just because the body is not the arbiter of sexual desire and of whether we should have sex and you know whether you're entitled to approach me, just because the body isn't the arbiter doesn't mean that we should take a really sort of superficial view of subjectivity. We just don't always know what we want. And so I don't want to replace one simplification with another. And that's very risky. <laughs> but utterly necessary, I think. Last question, um, which, is, which, is, which is to do with writing, actually. Because one of the things I found so refreshing about reading the book was that you know, there are two, like two ways in which people write politically about sex. And, you know, one is, is the confessional, this thing happened to me and here's my thoughts as a consequence and it involves a, it's confessional writing, very old, very interesting tradition, in some ways, very limited one. Or the denunciatory, right? You know, here's, here's what's wrong. I'm going to tell you what's wrong. And I'm going to, you know, I, there's not necessarily going to be a great deal of reflexivity about. Neither of these tones are, are, are present in your work. Um, you know, both those modes can be very thrilling. They can be really compelling and incredibly useful in, you know, in their sphere. 
what kind of writing is is adequate to the problems we're confronted with when it comes to sex and desire? Um, what kind of writing are we missing? Do we need to see more of? I think the difficulty of that question is why this book took me so long to write, actually, because um, I feel like ultimately, you know, I, I found a way to write this, but there were many years where I couldn't find the right tone for it, the, the right kind of rhythm for it. You know, it was, I had all these different bits of writing and, and they were, they weren't quite coming together. It wasn't working. And, um, and that, I mean, that issue is something I, I think about so much, partly because I find writing to be mostly such torture <laughs> and yet Sorry. I, and yet I want to do it so much. So, you know, obviously it's complicated, but, um, you know, it's, I mean, it's interesting that you, you know, you mentioned that that kind of like, you know, more polemical kind of denunciatory writing and then the confessional writing. And my first book was, you know, really written in the first person and it explores quite a lot of similar terrain, but it was written, you know, I was I, in that book, I was really trying to use a first person voice to step away from what felt to me like this, uh, especially at the time, you know, it's a long time ago. It was, I was writing in 2010, <laughs> feels like ages ago where a lot of the kind of publicly available feminist discourse was so convinced. It was so much about, I've worked this out, this is how to live, and I'm going to tell you. And it made me so uncomfortable and so unhappy that I wrote that book as a way of trying to kind of show like a mind thinking about those things and grappling with those things. And it was in this kind of more confessional voice Um and I think there are resonances between that first book and this book, but this book, it's like I've come back round more to a sort of faith in a more abstracted argument, but argument that's kind of suffused with that personal, you know, experience or, you know, just wrestling that, I mean, I think all writing is suffused with the writer's kind of personal grapplings. Um, but... I think what really kind of nailed it for me was was Me Too, because Me Too was this, um, there was such faith in the individual story as the place where politics can happen and as the vehicle for change. And I found it really distressing because I felt that actually what was happening was this very theatrical, spectacle-led injunction again on women to speak. You know, if you tell your story, the world will be a better place. I don't want to tell my fucking story. Sorry. I don't want to tell my story. No one should have to tell their story. You know, women and everyone should be able to tell their stories. But it seemed to me that there was a leaning on the personal narrative as a place for political thought. And I, there was something in me that wanted to resist that, partly because, again, I think it's a way of placing the burden on people who have experienced harm to resolve the problem that should be more collectively resolved. Um, so this book was like, you know, another long kind of reckoning with just how to write. <laughs> and I suppose, I mean, you know, I feel like there's room, there's room for so many different kinds of writing about these things. And I've really benefited from reading all kinds of, you know, confessional or denunciatory books. And, and also I'm very thrilled by, you know, I mean, Sophie Lewis's recent book, Full Surrogacy Now, and Helen Hester and the Xenofeminist, uh, the Laboria Cubonics Collective, you know, this kind of, like, it's almost parodying denunciation and, and utopian vehemence, isn't it? It's like, it's so kind of 
high on its own energy. And I love, I love that kind of writing and I, I can't do it. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I don't really know if that's an answer to your question, but, you know, I suppose just to say that I think the way one writes is always uh, an index and a symptom of these kind of substantive questions about what kind of politics we want. And we're all trying to answer that in some way in the way that we write, for good or for ill. <laughs> That's it for this week. My thanks to Catherine Angel for an extraordinary conversation, for her willingness to stay with the difficulty and with the complexity as she does so well in the book. Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again is out from Verso on March the 2nd and I can't recommend it enough. This has been Navara FM. I have been James Butler. Stay locked here on Resonance 104.4 FM and I will be back at the same time in the same place next week. Bye-bye. This broadcast, like all the cornucopia of content you can get at Navarra Media, is only possible through the small donations of hundreds of people like you. Join them. Go to navarra.media support. Listener.